Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi everyone and welcome to our GG reading. We are looking at this book, Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Now last week we looked at that first chapter, that is the call to discipleship, uh, looking at page 11 to 22. And now we're going to turn to the second chapter, which here he refers it to as in the school of Christ. And this is in page 23 to 33. Now as we did last week, we're going to break this into two for our convenience. Uh, so look at the first half uh, under two subheadings, that is come to me and learning Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at uh, the latter part, looking at two subtitles, Under the Yoke and an Uneasy Burden. Let us begin with the first part. So this is how uh, James begins uh, looking at this chapter. He quotes Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. This is what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. This is how James begins this chapter. In one form or another, human knowledge has been passed on through the centuries. But when we think of schools as places of formal learning, we inevitably think of Greece and the program of study established by Plato in Athens. Plato was the first to offer uh, a regular education extending over three or four years in a fixed place. Like Socrates, he began by selecting promising pupils from a public field or gymnasium on the outskirts of Athens. The field was called the Academy from the name of an athletic hero, Academus. Consequently, Prato School became known as the Academy, even though it was relocated to the garden of his house, which adjoined the gymnasium. Prato passed his house to his successor, Spius Pass, and he to his successor. So the Academy, in essence, became the first endowed institution of learning. It continued to operate for 900 years. Aristotle, a pupil of Plato, for 20 years set up a school of his own, choosing as his location another public gymnasium known as the Lyceum. It is interesting that from these two Greek institutions, numerous countries have divided three important terms, or have derived three important terms for a school. Germanic nations take their term from the playing field and call it their basic school, a gymnasium. Frenchmen call a school Lycee after Lyceum. English-speaking nations call many of their schools academies. It is right to say that the origins of the education establishment of the Western world, and other parts of the world too, can be traced to these Greek schools, and that the many millions currently studying in a great variety of fields are the successors of those peoples. But not nearly as many are in the school of Plato as are in the school of Jesus Christ. Jesus founded his school 
when he told those of his day, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28-30 Begin the sub- first subtitle here, Come to me. Now, the small paragraph from the end of Matthew 11 is one of the most important sections of the Bible. England's great evangelical bishop, J.C. Ryle, said, There are few passages in the four Gospels more important than this, few which contain in so short a compass so many precious truths. This is particularly true in respect to discipleship. These words are a call to discipleship. Come to me. But they are expressed by images designed to reinforce and expand the themes developed in the last chapter. The first point expanded in these verses is the one with which the last chapter closed, namely the invitation to people of all ages, nations, and personalities to come to Christ. It is important to emphasize this because we have a tendency to think that discipleship is somehow much too hard a calling for most people and that the call is therefore only for a special gifted class of Christians. Few people have trouble with the idea that they must confess their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They may not do it, but if they decide to, Doing so itself does not seem too hard in their opinion. It's quite different when they see that forsaking sin and cleaving to Jesus in saving faith is not the matter of a moment or a mere intellectual assent to certain religious propositions. When it is seen that belief also involves recognition of Christ's lordship over life and a commitment to him that is to persist through whatever hardships life may bring, to the very end of life, to death, and even through death to glory. When that is perceived, discipleship suddenly seems quite weighty and the calling hard. But it is precisely at this point that the universal offer must be stressed. For as I said in the last chapter, although foreign Christ in a certain sense Uh, Although foreign Christ is, in a certain sense, the hardest thing anyone can ever do, at the same time, it is possible for everyone because Christ provides his disciples with the will to persist in that calling. He indicates the broad scope of the offer when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, as you see in verse 28, my emphasis. But notice, it is for those who know they are burdened. This does not refer to mere physical weakness or to what we would call the burdens of a hard life, though it may include them. Chiefly, it refers to a sense of sin's burden and the need of a savior. The context of Matthew 11 makes this clear. For the earlier part of the chapter contains an account of the rejection of John the Baptist and Jesus by the Jewish masses, followed by a denunciation of Chorazin in Bethesda and Capernaum for their failure to repent at Jesus' preaching. After this, Jesus said, 
I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pressure, as you see in verse 25 to 26. Little children are those who are childlike in their self-evaluation and in faith. They recognize their need of a savior and are willing to abandon themselves to Christ as that savior. They are the opposite of those who are mature in pride, assured that they can save themselves. This is why periods of great movements of God's spirit are also periods of great repentance. It is why we are not in such a period today. It is why ours is a paltry age. Are you impressed by large numbers of professing Christians regardless of the moral tone or spiritual usefulness of their lives? If so, you will think ours a great age since, as Agara Paul informs us, there are more than 50 million born-again Christians in the United States. Are you impressed with large churches? If so, you judge ours an age of exceptional spiritual blessing. For the 20th century has seen development of the largest churches in history. In the United States, particularly in the West, churches of 5, 10, or even 15,000 members are common. Are you impressed with Christian organizations and institutions? If so, you judge ours an extraordinary age. We have well-run Madison Avenue-type organizations to do almost anything, including telling us what it is we should do, and they are successful. Are you impressed with money? If so, you must be ecstatic today, since more money is being given to Christian causes than ever before in human history. Even the most liberal churches report annual gains in revenue while their membership statistics decline. But if you are looking for something else, if you are looking for a mature knowledge of God and real godliness in Christian people and are bemoaning the secular spirit and exaggerating moral decadence of our time, even within fellowships of professing believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must grieve for the state of today's church and sorrow for the lost. You must long for the more true discipleship. Where discipleship is present, people are sensitive to sin and turn from it. They turn to Jesus where relief from sin, dreadful burden can be found. Are we experiencing revival today? Since so many claim to have had a born again experience? Not in my opinion. We are only in an age when the region has again become popular. We move on to the second subtitle, Learning Jesus Christ. Now to those who have become sensitive to sin and who are looking for deliverance, Jesus issued a challenge in terms of spiritual learning. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You see that in verse 29. When Jesus called disciples to follow him, he was comparing Christianity to a path his followers were to walk, he going ahead of them. When he challenged disciples to learn from me, he was comparing Christianity 
to a school in which he was to be both subject matter and teacher. This is the school of Christ in which every true believer has matriculated in which a lifelong course of study is prescribed. In this school, graduation is glorification, the day of death. The King James Version of Matthew 11.29 translates the words, learn from me as learn of me, thus making Jesus the subject matter of the Christian study rather than the teacher. This variation exists because the Greek preposition apo, which occurs here, can mean several things, including of or from, and English has no exactly comparable words. Translators must choose one idea or the other when actually each of the ideas is necessary. The fundamental idea is knowing Christ himself. In precisely the sense of John 17:3, where Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This knowledge of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is salvation or eternal life. We must be careful to explain what we mean when we speak of knowing God in a saving way, however. For this is no mere intellectual knowledge of God, any more than saving faith is mere intellectual assent to certain truths. Knowing God is a complex matter. England's J.I. Parker has written a best-selling book, Knowing God, in which he analyzes knowing. He points out that even in human terms, there is a difference between knowing about something, knowing something personally, and knowing a person. We can learn about things easily. For example, we can learn about the government of the United States from books. We can learn how the various branches of government relate to each other. We can learn how people are elected to the Senate or, or the House of Representatives. We can learn how bills are drafted, passed, and funded. This is important knowledge, particularly if a person is contemplating a career in government. But it is obviously quite different from the knowledge that comes from actually working in government or, in, or on the Washington scene. A person who has done this might say, I know how Washington operates, and they mean a great deal to tell more than merely saying he knows about it. When we move from the knowledge of things or processes to people, we obviously go a great deal further. For one thing, people are not always predictable. They act unexpectedly. They cover up what they are like. This means that it is possible to spend a great deal of time with a person and perhaps say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. Getting to know another person depends on two things ourselves and whether we want to know the person and will spend time at it and the other person who must be willing to reveal himself to us. In fact, when we weigh those factors, the most important is clearly the other person's willingness to open up and disclose what he or she is like. Now take the matter of knowing to the highest level and ask what it means to know God. It obviously involves these lower stages. 
we must know about God and we must experience God. All this, particularly the latter, also depends on God's willingness to reveal himself to us, which he does in nature, in the Bible, and in the interpretation of the Bible to our hearts and minds through the Holy Spirit. But there's an additional factor. We are sinful. God is holy. Therefore, the knowledge of God in this deepest saving sense also always involves a knowledge of ourselves in our sin and our wonder at the greatness of the love of God extended to such sinful creatures. Parker says, Knowing God involves first listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. Second, knowing God's nature and character as his word and work reveal it. Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown in thus approaching one and drawing one into this divine fellowship. This is why preaching that neglects to mention sin is not true preaching and why experience of God that does not leave the worshipper with a profound sense of his or her own sinfulness and even a greater sense of the love of God is not true experience. It is why we live in an age whose religious health is an illusion. Today we have preachers, well-known, highly successful preachers, who refuse to mention sin in their teaching. Not because it is difficult to do or because they have trouble doing it, but because in their judgment, people do not need to hear about such subjects. They believe people feel bad enough as it is. They need rather to be affirmed. Affirmed! People today hardly feel the weight of sin at all. Nothing they do is ever considered sinful. Will you maintain that such persons know God and are saved by God? even if they make profession of it? The second idea is the command, learn from me. Is the second idea in the command, learn from me, is having Jesus Christ as our teacher in the school. It is the idea that the New International Version and the New King James Version translators focus on in their rendering. How does Jesus teach us? We can understand how he taught in the days of his earthly ministry. Then he literally called disciples to follow after him and instructed them as they traveled about together. Most of the words of Jesus in our Gospels are from these teaching sessions. How does Jesus teach us now when he is in heaven and we are here on earth? Jesus answered that clearly in John 14, 25, verse 26, and in John 16, 13 to 14. It's what it says. All these I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. 
He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit would first lead the disciples to remember and record his teaching in what、uh, we call the New Testament. Then he would guide Christ's followers into increasing knowledge of the truth on the basis of that written revelation. So we begin, we end here for that first、uh, part. Then we're going to move to the second part. We are looking at the second chapter、uh, of Christ's call to discipleship. This is called In the School of Christ. We have just looked at the first two subtitles、uh, Come to Me and Learn in Jesus Christ, page 23 to 29. And now we are turning to the second part、uh, with two subtitles Under the Yoke and An Uneasy Burden. This is how James begins this second、uh, subtopic, Under the Yoke. The yoke. Now, in calling disciples to labor in his school, Jesus introduced a further image to explain the relationship of the disciple to himself that he had in mind. It was the image of a yoke. Now, a yoke is placed over the head and shoulders of a farm animal, such as an ox or horse, to enable it to work. But it's also a, a rod under which people were sometimes required to pass in in order to show allegiance to a conqueror. Yoke is such a rich word, embodying several important elements. We're going to look at this. First one is submission. Now, this idea was developed in the last chapter and flows naturally from the picture of people passing under a conqueror's yoke. But also involved is the concept of an animal submitting to its master's yoke and a scorer submitting to the academic discipline of a professor. When we come to Jesus Christ in salvation, we come to him as our master, who will henceforth guide our lives, superintend our work, and direct our studies. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon saw. Take my yoke as meaning, if you will be saved by me, I must be your master and you must be my servant. You cannot have me for a savior if you do not accept me for a lawgiver and commander. If you will not do as I bid you, neither shall you find rest to your souls. The second element is work. Now, the yoke placed upon the shoulders of a farm animal enables it to work. The yoke of Christ, placed among the shoulders of his followers, undoubtedly has a similar purpose in their lives. It means that we are hitched to his team or enlisted in his service. We are soldiers in his army, builders of his temple, evangelists for his gospel, ambassadors for his kingdom. This explains why Jesus was so willing to link a people's salvation to whether all he or she performed in his service, as, is, as in the stories of the wise and foolish virgins, the men who had been given talents, and the division of the sheep and the gods. Those stories trouble some people because they seem to be saying that salvation, salvation depends upon works, whether people are a rat and waiting for Jesus. When he returns, whether they use the talents he has given them, whether they feed the hungry, give drinks to the dust, receive strangers, clothe the naked, care for the sick, or visit those who are in prison, 
and not upon simple faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Salvation by works is a false gospel, as all true Christians know. These people would probably call these parables false teaching if they were not the words of Jesus himself found in Scripture. But of course, these stories are not teaching a false gospel. The parables ask Mary whether a person belongs to Christ or not, which means has he or she taken on Christ's yoke? If a person has taken Christ's yoke, which he does when he believes on Christ, there is no separating the two, he will work for Christ. Conversely, if he does not work for Christ, he clearly has not taken on Christ's yoke and has not believed on him, all come to know him savingly. Notice that it is not a question of how much we are able to do for Christ. In the story of the talents, one man earned five talents, another only two. Both were saved. The question is whether a person has taken on the yoke. It is whether we are working for Christ or not. The third element is companionship. The third element in the image of a yoke is companionship, which is another way of saying that there are also others in Christ's school. It is possible to have a yoke for just one animal, as is as the yoke in the one horse sleigh. But yokes generally fit over the heads of two animals, so that the load is distributed and the pool balanced. I'm glad that it is like that in Christ's school. The work is often hard. The hours are long. Many fingers make the work light. There may be this thought also. When Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he may have been saying that the yoke is his in the sense that a yoke is a farmer's and that he needs to place it upon our shoulders. But it may also be that the yoke is his in the sense that he is wearing it too and is calling us to take our place beside him for the work to be done. In view of Bible's teaching elsewhere, I think this is the correct idea. We are God's fellow workers, as you see in 1 Corinthians 3.9 and 2 Corinthians 6.1. Jesus did promise to go with us to the very end of the age, as you see in Matthew 28, verse 20. We are working with Christ, and there is no load for us that he himself does not pull. Matthew Henry wrote, We are yoked to work, and therefore must be diligent. We are yoked to submit and therefore must be humble and patient. We are yoked together with our fellow servants, and therefore must keep up the communion of saints. We move on to the last subtitle here, and that is an easy burden. Now when we think of being harnessed together with others in Christ's school, it is possible to be discouraged, especially if we reflect that the work is hard, and the course of instruction is unending. It is like entering upon a work-study program in which there are no holidays and no summer vacations. Perhaps the Lord sensed this as he spoke, for he appended three powerful inducements to obey his call. First, he portrayed himself as a kind and humble master. Most of us have been in schools where teachers were not kind or humble. Perhaps they were lazy 
and compensated for their late laziness by overloading their students. Teaching fellows have made undergraduates research their thesis for them. Perhaps they were bitter. Maybe they had hoped for a better spot on the faculty. Then they had been passed over for promotion and so took it out on their students. Perhaps they were filled with thoughts of their own importance and thus could hardly stoop to explain themselves to one who was not quite so far along in the academic road. A semester with a teacher like that can seem forever. Jesus, though, is not that kind of teacher. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart, as you see in verse 29. He is easy to approach, glad to be helpful. The very next chapter of Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 verse 3. It says, A bruised lead he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. We see that in Matthew 12 verse 20. Second thing is that Jesus speaks of his yoke being easy and his burden light, as you see in verse 30. That is an interesting thing for him to say, because to my knowledge, it is the only place in scripture, perhaps in secular literature as well, except for that inference by Christ onwards, where a yoke is portrayed as easy, light, or desirable. In all other biblical instances, a yoke is wondrous. One illustration comes from the early days of King Rehoboam. When Rehoboam ascended the throne after the death of his father Solomon, the people asked, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. As you see in 1 Kings 12 verse 4, Rehoboam replied, my father made you your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. See in verse 14. As a result, uh, the people rebelled and the nation was divided into a north and a southern kingdom. In a similar manner, the New Testament speaks of a yoke of slavery, as you see in Galatians 5.1 and 1 Timothy 6.1. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, breaking the yoke means deliverance. Jesus' yoke is not like that. The reason his yoke is different is that he is different. Yokes of human masters are hard because human beings are hard. They are sinners who treat subjects in a sinful manner. The yoke of Jesus is an easy yoke because he is gentle and humble in heart. True, there is work to do. There is something, this, there, this is sometimes trying. But it is not like a living a life of sin. It is easy compared to that. And it is a joy when it is difficult. We come closer to describing what is involved in Christ's service when we say that in serving him we find liberty and that in taking on his yoke we find deliverance. That Jesus speaks of rest for tired disciples. In fact, he speaks of two rests. There is a rest that is given. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You see in verse 28, my emphasis. And there is a rest that is found. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 29, again, my emphasis. These rests correspond to two references to peace in Paul's writing. Peace with God, which is the result of justification, as we see in Romans 5.1. And the peace of God, which is ours as we lay our concerns before him. Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Jesus is all, Jesus is all you or any other poor, struggling, burdened soul we ever truly need. So why struggle further in sin? You are laboring onward like pilgrim, distressed at the burden on your back. No other master will ever lift that burden. Many will actually add to it. Most will ignore your pride since they have burdens of their own. Turn from the lesser masters to the great and good master. Turn from the lesser teachers to him who can teach true godliness and whose teaching will save your soul. That is the end of our second chapter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brisbane Church Podcast. For more information and past episodes, visit our website gracepointchurch.org.